I'm very pleased to uh, welcome a good friend of mine uh, to the pulpit this morning as a guest preacher. Uh, Brian Buck and I overlapped for uh, one year at, in seminary at Reform Seminary uh, in Orlando, and he's also a graduate of the uh, University of Tennessee, the, the former football powerhouse in the SEC. Um, he and his family just moved here recently from Atlanta, where he was uh, an associate pastor at a, a really cool church just outside of downtown, and he and his family are now planting a church in Selwood. So we're very glad that they're here, not only at InTown, but also in Portland. So Brian, thanks so much for being here. Well, it's a delight to be with you guys in worship and community this morning. Uh, we moved here at the beginning of the summer to plant a church for the Sopo District. I'm trying to coin that phrase to make it sound like what we're doing is really hip and cool. Um, but we're planting a parish church for the neighborhood south of Powell, down on the east side. And uh, we're really excited to be here. This process for us began about four years ago. I came here to Portland for a conference and had breakfast with Brian at Doug Fur and asked him a simple question, does Portland need church plants? And it was a simple answer of yes. And uh, I think that was, in a sense, the seed that was planted in my mind that has grown up over these years. Two years ago, uh, my wife Amanda and I came here for a vision trip to check out different parts of the city, had a chance to visit with some of you guys, and ever since those two years, we have been preparing for this move, all sorts of logistics, fundraising, etc., to plant this church. And so we're finally here. It feels like we've been already on a long hike, and we've reached the first uh, summit, so to speak. And uh, this summer, we've been able to enjoy the view a bit. It's been an enjoyable summer. Uh, we've been trying to unpack, settle in, begun to make connections, but it hasn't been easy. Uh, we have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a little guy that's about to be four. And we talked about this move with our kids for like a year. And uh, we shipped our stuff out here and then all flew together on a plane. And I'm sitting next to my little guy. And he says, he looks up at me, he says, Daddy, where are we going? And I'm like, dude, we've been talking about this for a year, you know, trying to get a three-year-old's mind wrapped around uprooting our entire life and making this move. Um, our girls, Atlanta Public Schools, they got out of school the third week of May. So that's like almost a month before Portland Public Schools. So they have had the endless summer. Going into Labor Day, we were all on the brink of insanity. And so Tuesday morning, it was a great celebration. Uh, we just about, Amanda and I just about went home and had mimosas to celebrate. So um, glad to be moving into the rhythms of fall. In December of 1955, around 6 p.m. in Montgomery, Alabama, something happened that would change the course of history. An African-American woman was asked to give up her seat and she refused. And the bus driver looked at her with this confused look. Later on, Rosa Parks recounted that when he saw me still sitting, he asked if I was going to stand up, and I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and have you arrested. And in this one powerful moment, Rosa Parks decided to follow the truth of Jesus and speak prophetically into the course of history. And she empowered this bus driver and said, you may do that. 
Later on in the 1956 radio interview, Parks said she had decided, I would have to know for once and for all what rights I had as a human being and as a citizen. You know, if I had to guess this morning, most of us would not consider our life as significant as Rosa Parks, that something spectacular hasn't happened out of our life like the civil rights movement. But I do find it intriguing that something happened here in a very mundane place, on a bus, in an everyday reality, on the way home from work. Rosa Parks chose to speak prophetically in a way that would reshape the destiny of human beings all around the globe and reshape our vision for justice here in the United States. And it begs the question, what is it that God is wanting to do through our everyday interactions? as we trust him to speak prophetically in the situations and in the relationships around us. You know, by way of Myers-Briggs, if I had to guess this morning, those of you who are feelers on the Myers-Briggs, so often we get caught in this place where we want to avoid the truth in a sense at all cost. Confrontation is discomforting. We don't want to find ourselves in that place. Some of us, though, we're, we're on the other end of the spectrum. We're thinkers on the Myers-Briggs, and we don't really handle truth that well either. In fact, we often wield truth like a weapon, and we kill people with it, with little regard. But here in Acts chapter 22, God gives us a different sort of vision for truth. He says, what what if it was a hammer and a chisel? And through my power, you created things like the statue of David— Because in fact, that's what Christianity is all about, is God shaping us into the beautiful and glorious image of Christ through his truth. What if that was our vision for truth? That we handled it carefully and with intention. The result could be a greater experience of peace and wholeness in our life. We would taste of the glory that we only hear rumors of at times from Scripture. So to unpack this a bit more, we're going to look at two main things this morning. Look at the truth really through two primary lenses. First, we're going to look at the prophetic voice through the life of Paul. And then secondly, we're going to look at the prophetic voice in our own life. But we'll begin with the life of Paul. We can take note at the beginning of chapter 22, which was a very long passage to read. Thank you uh, for reading that. Um, We can take note at the beginning of this chapter that Paul had a tremendous affection for the Jews. If you were to go back and read in chapter 21, uh, kind of the full narrative, Paul was in the temple, and there he was having conversation. Perhaps he he was even talking about this new liberation that he had experienced in Christ. Perhaps he was even teaching. And some of his fellow Jews came to him, and they began to stir up dissent. And it actually became this riotous mob that grabbed a hold of Paul, drug him out of the temple, down the temple steps, and out into the city streets. This flurry of activity, it arose the attention of this Roman centurion guard that was charged with keeping the peace. And so they they came out of the barracks and they said, what's going on here? And uh, They see this riotous mob and they're all after Paul and these Roman centurions, they take Paul and they drag him down into the barracks. And the headline that morning that everyone was reading at breakfast was that there was this Egyptian terrorist that was running around the city. 
And so the Roman centurions, they naturally asked Paul, are you this guy that we heard about, this Egyptian terrorist? And Paul says, no, 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 no. My life isn't even close to that. I'm but a mere Jew from this backwater town, an obscure city. And he says, if you'll give me a moment, I want to walk back out and address these people. Paul had his identity in something so deep, so solid, so firm, that he went back outside to face this riotous mob, and he begins to tell them his story. This is the second time that Luke, the author of Acts, tells the story of Paul, or really allows Paul to tell his own story. And it's interesting to note exactly what Luke is getting at and what Paul is getting at in this specific story that's told in a very specifically Jewish way. And I think it has to do with the truth that began to reshape Paul's life. And I think there's a couple of things that we can learn about the prophetic voice out of Paul's life as he tells this story. The first thing is this. Whether you're Paul or Ananias, heroes of the faith, or whether it's you or I, I think as human beings, at the core of who we are, we really don't desire to hear God's voice in our life. We see this first in the life of Ananias in chapter 22, verses 12 through 16 that we just read. When Paul is recounting his story, he reflects back on Ananias' influence in his life just after the Damascus Road experience where Paul's whole world was shifted upside down. Uh, Paul comes into uh, Damascus and he's very broken. He's blind. He's distraught. Everything that he thought about his life was being turned on its head. And along comes this man named Ananias. And as Paul tells it in chapter 22, Ananias is this competent man. After all, he is the man who came alongside Paul and was part of his emotional and spiritual healing. It's through Ananias' influence that Paul received God's new vision for his life. And it's really by the hand of Ananias that Paul was baptized into this new faith. But if we were to go back towards the beginning of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 9, and we won't read it now, in verses 10 through 14, we get a different picture of Ananias. When Jesus first came to Ananias and told him truth about his involvement in Paul's life, in verse 10 it reads, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, The Lord came to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. You know, Ananias, he was himself writing this little story of his life, and Jesus was coming to challenge that story, to actually put that story at risk. And Ananias is saying to Jesus, no way, that's going to cost too much. Ananias resisted the truth of Jesus. So did Paul. Verse 22 through 17 through 20, or chapter 22, verse 17 through 21 that we just read. At the end of that passage, Jesus comes to Paul and casts this new vision for his life. And he says, you're going to go out to the Gentiles and proclaim this liberating news about me. Paul has two problems with that. First of all, the Gentiles, 
they are the man. They are the people who are oppressing the Jews. And so first, Paul has a cultural issue with this. But then secondly, Paul is reflecting on his own story. And he knows that it's widely known throughout the Mediterranean basin that he was the one who persecuted not just men, not just a few people, but many men and women, even to death for the name of Christianity. And he asked Jesus, who in the world is going to believe me? You know, Paul and Ananias, they are a lot like us. We don't want to hear the voice of Jesus. We don't want to receive the truth of Jesus. But these men, in the end, they ended up listening. What changed? As I was thinking about that question, I thought about the nature of fairy tales. In fairy tales, they follow this very basic pattern. They begin with, once upon a time, when everything was in order in the world, when all of the universe, so to speak, was at peace. But then what happens? Something cracks, something breaks, some relationship becomes broken, some tragedy happens, some conflict arises, and then the world is broke. And then what draws us into the rest of the story is this gnawing feeling that we have within our gut, as well as the gut of the characters, that, that there's this, this movement towards the way the world ought to be. And all of the characters in the story, that they're working towards that ending, the way the world ought to be, until they can reach that final place where everyone lives happily ever after. You know, fairy tales have to do with the controlling narrative, what's inside of your gut that is dominating our life. This came to surface for me a couple of months ago. We were in the process of selling our home so that we can finally move here to Portland after several years. And uh, we had done months worth of work preparing our house to get on the market, working with our real estate agent. And the day finally came for our listing to go live. And uh, the day it went live, we received a flurry of phone calls of people wanting to see our house. And I was, I'm a very driven sort of individual. And I'm thinking, wow, we've really got to strike while the iron is hot here. And Amanda calls me in the middle of the day and says, hey, I'm, I'm getting really sick. And uh, I don't think she'd mind me sharing this, but she ended up having stomach virus. And I was thinking to myself, this is the, like the worst thing to have when people are trying to come visit your home is stomach virus. And so um, I was trying to figure this out in my head. I was like, this is kind of the moment that we've been waiting for, the linchpin to our move. But here's my wife who's sick. And just by way of confession, in my drivenness, I was thinking, we've got to move forward. <laughs> We've got to be able to show our house tonight. You know, that was really the story that I was writing. It's a story of selfishness. But there was this other story that began to come into my psyche. And it was the story of God. It was the story of my true identity. It was the story of Scripture saying, love your wife as Christ has loved the church and given himself up for her. I thought to myself, oh yeah, that's who I really am. You know, when we're simply writing our own short story, the only narrative that we have is our own. And when it comes down to that question, how should the world be? Well, that becomes largely debatable. When we look at history, the Crusades, World War II, we look at what we're struggling with in present-day reality in the Ukraine, in Syria, in Iraq, and history in the present day are littered 
with short stories, dime novels that we write that are really stories of shame, stories filled with genocide and abuse and selfishness and gossip and deceit. It's really the way the world ought to be according to us. Part of what God is wanting us to see here in this passage is that we will never risk speaking the truth, speaking prophetically into situations if we feel like it's going to threaten that little narrative that we're writing. And so this week, perhaps the narrative that you're writing is a narrative around comfort in relationships. And you know deep within your heart there's someone that you love that you need to speak the truth to. But you're thinking to yourself, is it worth the risk of totally doing away with that story of comfort? You know, this week you're going to be working on a team, on a project. And you know, your story is all about your reputation in your career. And you know you need to speak prophetically into the situation, into the conversation, in order to make the project better. But you fear rejection. Your story is all about acceptance and reputation. So you don't want to risk that little story. You know, uh, so many times when we hear the truth about ourselves, a friend comes to us with some feedback, or perhaps we're having a performance review at work. We want to push those people away and say to ourselves, that can't possibly be true because I've got a narrative that I'm writing, and I believe it about myself. And what they're saying threatens that. Paul and Ananias, they discovered a different way. And they discovered this different way through a transformational encounter with Jesus. You know, so often we think that withholding the truth or wielding the truth as a weapon is somehow going to make the situation better. But in the end, we're just loving ourselves. We're not really loving others. Paul and Ananias, they chose to listen and it redefined their life. And what they came to discover was that this man, Jesus, at the cross, in his death, he was able to take their little short story of 70 years, stories filled with shame, and he nailed those stories to the cross, and he did away with them forever. And in the power of the resurrection, he gave a new story to Paul and Ananias. He gives a new story to us. It's a grand Narrative. It's a Pulitzer Prize winter, winner. And Paul and Ananias, they began to redefine their life. They really began to read their life not as their own, as if they were the author, but they began to see themselves as primary characters in the epic poem that was being penned by Jesus. And it radically altered the trajectory of who they were. Ananias, he had this opportunity. Imagine if he would have resisted this voice of Jesus. He would have never been a part of bringing Paul uh, into the faith, of being a part of kind of that embryonic stage in his spiritual journey. Can you imagine being able to lay that claim for your life that I was the person who brought the Apostle Paul to faith? Because Ananias found himself in the grander narrative of Jesus, he was able to make that claim for his own life. Paul, because his life, his identity was grounded in this grand narrative of Jesus, that's what gave him the courage to step out of the barracks back onto the city streets 
and tell his fellow Jews, I love you. And you need to hear how the truth of Jesus has transformed my life. Even later on, if you were to read on in chapter 22, although Rome is the man, the soldiers, they begin to, in a sense, rough up Paul. And Paul speaks truth to power. And he's able to do that because he realizes that his identity is in this grand narrative of Jesus. So it begs the question, what's the controlling narrative of your life this morning? Are we really satisfied with that short story that we're writing? And What could happen if we find ourselves caught up in this grand narrative where Jesus is the author? And he delights in us as the primary characters. That really moves us to our second consideration here. How does the prophetic voice shape our life? You know, Jesus didn't just come and quote-unquote save us to punch a golden ticket for heaven. But he's wanting to come and transform the realities all around us in the here and now. What does that feel like? Before I was a pastor, I was in commercial lighting and sales and marketing roles for about seven years Early on in my career, our company uh, made this huge platform shift to Oracle. And the first round of that happened in our manufacturing facilities, and it was a huge mess. And so when it came to the sales and marketing side, we were all kind of cringing. How is this going to impact our daily workflow? And there were some hiccups, but in the end, when the full implementation was complete... We found that this new operating system, as hard as it was to get adjusted to, this new operating system, it was more effortless. We were able to to transmit data and have access to data in a more seamless manner. In some sense, that's what the invitation into this grand narrative is like. And we're not just primary characters on our own, but instead God is pouring out His Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, within our life empowering us as primary characters so that we're doing this really cool thing of working with the author about how to shape reality as we know it. And I think this has a couple of different implications for us. I think first, the Holy Spirit living inside of us and empowering us, it enables us to hear the truth. Just last week, a new friend of mine here in Portland, he came to me And we had hung out a couple of times. He had observed me in some social situations. And he came to me. We were kind of just hanging out. But then he spoke some hard words of challenge to me. And I really didn't want to hear these words. I really wanted to push back on him. And um, it was a kind of a convoluted situation. But upon reflection, God showed me that a lot of what he was saying was true. And that as, as my life is caught up in this grand narrative, I can actually hear and receive. And those, those words can shape me because they don't threaten my little narrative. My whole identity is grounded in this grand narrative with God. And so it makes you and I able to hear the truth. Because when people give us feedback, we actually see that it's enhancing the narrative of God. And as hard as it is to hear, that causes us to rejoice. We're able to hear the truth, but we're also able to speak the truth. You can look back in the Old Testament and see that the people of God were governed by three primary offices. A prophet, people who told the truth. Priest, the people who had mercy 
on the people and administered forgiveness to the people. And then the king, the people, the person who oversaw all the infrastructure and the military of the kingdom. And Jesus, as theologians describe, Jesus was ultimately all three of these things, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, a total fulfillment for us. And if that's true of Jesus and we are his body, then it's true of the church that we take on these three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And when I think about the realities here in Portland, you know, I think we as the church, and really as the people of Portland, we get the whole king thing pretty well. I mean, we're one of the most organized, one of the most progressive cities in the world. You know, we get this whole priestly thing. We've got that down pretty well. Um, We have more nonprofits per capita than any city in the United States. We get, in a sense, how to have mercy upon the citizens here. But it's this whole profit piece we really struggle with that we dance around in terms of the truth. And in your bulletin, there's a quote by scholar Gregory Thompson that I love that shows us the way in terms of the prophetic voice He writes, the work of the church is not only to partner with its neighbors collaboratively, but also to bear witness to its neighbors prophetically. That is, the work of the church is not simply to participate in the world that is, but also must bear witness to the world that ought to be. This is the way of God, participating in the life of the world, and yet calling the world beyond itself and into his life, and is also to be the way of his people. Later on, the Apostle Paul would Show us the way in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And listen to this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't get caught up in your little short story. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, be swept up in the grand narrative that Jesus is writing then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Synergy between primary characters and their author. The Holy Spirit enables us to hear the truth. It enables us to speak the truth. But finally, the Holy Spirit enables us to support the truth. You know, some of you, you've courageously uh, dug into the last third of the Old Testament, uh, which is kind of, just around halfway of your Bible, and you've been totally confused. And you're thinking to yourself, what are all of these other books about? The books of the prophets. And people are running around doing all sorts of crazy things, speaking of imagery. And so often we think of the prophets in the Old Testament as fortune tellers. But really they were truth tellers. Speaking the truth to the people of God and speaking the truth to the people in power. And if you look at most of the prophets' lives, most of them were killed after they told the truth. And we want to say that that's an ancient response, but I don't think it is. I think still today we want to kill, in a sense, quote-unquote kill, those people who are speaking the truth. And maybe it's, it's pushing back on Jesus but, but maybe it's, it's more broadly defined in terms of the prophets of our culture, what your counselor says to you, how the artist is portraying the, the visual piece or what the performing arts are actually saying, what the songwriters are doing, what the, what the poets are saying. 
So often here in the church, our response, instead of joining Jesus in cultural renewal, we want to push back on those people. And it's those prophets in our culture that are telling us what's wrong with the world and pointing us to the way the world ought to be. Blaine Hogan, a follower of Christ, who's an actor, he wrote an article um, just this past year in the wake of the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he writes this, And yet the feeling I can't shake is that I should be Philip Seymour Hoffman. I should be dead of some overdose. For some reason, because of people who kept telling me the truth, therapists who kept calling me back, and a whole ton of grace, I'm alive. But it leaves me with lingering unease. I'd like to call us to start asking ourselves questions. When will we start caring more for the souls of the artist than the way our souls are enriched by their work? What cost are we willing to pay to allow our prophets and poets to suffer on our behalf? You know, comically or simply stating it, we could ask ourselves the question, have, have you hugged the prophet around you recently, the person who told you the truth, your counselor, your therapist? Um, have you hugged uh, the, the artist around you? Have you hugged the songwriter around you? But I think more powerfully, what I think that God is wanting us to, to prayerfully ask is, God, give us an imagination for cultural renewal. Jesus, what is it that you want us to do here in Portland to support the artists in our midst? Maybe we would never see our lives like Rosa Parks, the spark for the civil rights movement. But I find it interesting, her motivation beyond it all, behind it all. I would have to know for once and for all what rights I had as a human being and as a citizen. I think that's the truth of Jesus. I think what she understood there is that there was an abandonment of an inhumane short story that we were writing. And there was a calling, an invitation to the grand narrative of Jesus that would redefine everything. May we be those people. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word, in your truth. is so hard to hear sometimes. We want to push back on you, but we pray that we would receive your truth, we would be transformed by it, and we would find ourselves in your narrative, and it would redefine everything. We believe, but help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.